0: This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information.
1: AstronomyCast, episode 196 for Monday, June 28, 2010. Luminosity and Magnitude. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Cain. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser?
1: Doing very well. So I think we're going to...
0: Give in to summer?
1: Give in in to summer. (laughs) This is the last episode of the summer. So... The date on this, June 28th, we're going to take July and August off. And by going to, I mean we already did, and now we're just going to make it official. So, no episodes from June 28th till the beginning of September, and then we're going to be doing Dragon DragonCon, uh, and we're going to try and do a live show there. We will do a live show there, and then uh, regular schedule will continue after that, when, when your summer travel schedule eases up
0: and we're going to be bringing back the question shows and we're going to work very very hard to get back to our old uh, we launch on Mondays we launch mm-hmm. on Thursdays and yeah, we're going to try it's a goal
1: it's a goal it's a dream and so and so Dragon Con September or Labor Day weekend uh, in Atlanta both of us are going to be there we're going to be doing a live version of astronomy cast and we're going to be on a bunch of other panels we will be. We're gonna have T-shirts, CDs. So if you want to come and hang and meet us and go for beer, uh, we'll be there, and that'll be great.
0: And uh, we're we're hoping that all of you will come and get Astronomy Cast T-shirts, please. <laughs> okay. They're pretty.
1: Yeah. They're pretty cool. I like them actually.
0: Yeah, Luke Hayes did our CDs, and Justin Ogilvie did our T-shirts, and we love all of our wonderful creative listeners like those too.
1: Oh and then also Thursday night on the 2nd is that right? We yes. have the star party?
0: Yes there there's a uh, Maria Walters one of the skeptics is arranging a moon over cancer star party to raise money to help defeat cancer in the name of the blue collar scientist Jeff Medkeff and uh, Fraser and I will be there and uh, I'll be giving a talk on citizen science and we hope that the rest of you will come and help us raise money for the American Cancer Society
1: and there's some information on yeah on the Atlanta Skeptics uh, website and also on Dragon Con too, so on their site and I'm sure we'll, we'll have some links in the show notes so okay all right well let's get on with the show then so astronomers measure the brightness of stars as magnitude but this brightness depends on the distance of the star as well as the total amount of energy it's pumping out into space and from our vantage point here on earth appearances can be deceiving so let's let's get a let's get some terminology out of the way so what's luminosity
0: It is a measure of how much flux of photons, how many photons per square meter measured in units of energy are coming off of an object.
1: And then magnitude?
0: Magnitude is a way of taking that linear set of numbers and transforming it into what your eyes see. So if you double the number in luminosity, the number of photons doubles. Right. If you double the number in magnitude systems, it's some crazy logarithmic scaling craziness.
1: Right. But the point being that there's two kinds of magnitude, right? There's absolute magnitude and apparent magnitude.
0: Yes, and and both of those have this crazy nonlinear way of looking at the numbers. But the apparent magnitude system is how bright something actually looks in the sky. You look up, you see it, you go, oh, that's magnitude three. But absolute magnitude is kind of like the number you read on a light bulb box. If you're a mile away from the light bulb, it's not that bright. If you are right next to the light bulb, it's really bright. But in both cases, it's going to be the same luminosity the same absolute magnitude that it says in the box 100 watts or whatever
1: and why does this matter
0: well if you're trying to figure out how to compare two objects if i'm looking in the sky at a really close nearby average mundane star it might appear to be the same brightness as ginormous giant universe devouring not really they don't do that giant hundred solar mass star that's on the other side of the galaxy from us
1: right some of the closest stars are invisible right. while some of the brightest stars are you the know most are the most distant and yet in the sky
0: they appear the same
1: it's hard to tell them apart
0: yeah yeah and that's apparent brightness right So if I want to make a meaningful comparison of these two objects, that's where luminosity comes in. That's where absolute magnitude comes in. And absolute magnitude is the number you'd get if both objects were 10 parsecs, about 30 light years away from you.
1: So, yeah, I've seen the magnitude system before. I mean, there's a a number associated with the brightness of all of the objects. You know, the moon has this magnitude, the sun has that magnitude, and the dimmest stars visible with the unaided eye have such and such magnitude. Six. So where does this... this Don't give it away. <laughs>
0: uh, so,
1: so where does this numeric system come from? What's the history of this?
0: Well, it was first documented by Ptolemy, and uh, it probably came originally from Hipparchus. And the, the system starts with just the rather simple... Let's take the brightest stars in the sky, call them magnitude 1, take the faintest stars in the sky, call them magnitude 6, and build in between, where 1 to 2 is roughly a doubling, uh, 2 to 3 is roughly a doubling according to your eyeball. Now, our eyeballs aren't linear systems. This is the problem. What your eye sees is twice as bright, Your Your little detector that you have for your camera won't. But it was a system to start with. And so it got worked with for a long time. And then it was realized, well, you know, maybe there's a bunch of stuff out there that's even brighter. So then the system got reworked with the star Vega, um, which is one of the brightest northern hemisphere stars, but not the brightest, just one of the brightest. It got redone as magnitude zero. And we based the entire system on magnitude zero in a given detector at a given time through a given filter set. And now we recognize that Vega is actually magnitude 0.03. Good enough. So the system is based on Vega zero, faintest thing your human eye can see under normal dark skies unless you're a superhuman person. Steve O'Mira can see fainter than that. That's magnitude six. And most big cities you can see magnitude four
1: so this in the i guess in the olden days uh this was all done visually and that must have been really open to interpretation i mean everybody's eyes are a little bit different trying to say well it's, you know this star is brighter and that star is dimmer i think it's a four i think it's a five 5.2 it must have been a really inexact science and then now we have these modern instruments right where we we're where a CCD can tell you exactly how many photons are falling on it and and give you an exact measurement.
0: Well, the crazy thing is how inexact it wasn't. The human eye is a very... uh, accurate measure as long as you have things that you know their brightness. So you start with Vega, you label it zero, and then you move your way across the sky labeling things that are known standards. Now, if you can get a bunch of people to agree on a handful of stars scattered across the sky and their brightnesses, it's possible to work your way down from that. And what organizations like the American Association of Variable Star Observers have found is human beings, if they're looking at objects nearby on the sky and they know this one's magnitude 12.4, and this one, well, that would be binoculars, they know this one is magnitude 3.4, this one over here is 3.9, this one over here is 3.2. What's this one in the middle? It's in the three range as well. They can, in the case of the best observers, get it accurate down to an extra decimal point. It's Mm 3.46. And there's some error in that,
2: right.
0: but they're tracking the CCD measurements. So if you take the best observers and you average their measurements together and then compare it to a CCD, you can see all the same nuances in a light curve.
1: And so then as you say, the, the magnitude scale is a is a doubling, is that right? It's a doubling of light. So to go from, from say, 6 to 5... You're seeing twice as much light coming from the star.
0: Well, and this is where what you perceive differs from reality. So it's it's really a logarithmic system. So the reality is that between a magnitude one star and a magnitude six star, there's a factor of a hundred times in the actual light coming off of it.
1: And astronomers have then added all of the objects into this scale, right? So yeah. Things can be a lot brighter than zero, and this is where it gets kind of weird, and things can be a lot dimmer than six.
0: Right, right. So... It turns out that really bright stars like Cirrus, they end up with negative magnitudes. And it's, it's always curious to say, well, Cirrus is the brightest star and it has a magnitude of negative 1.4. Only in astronomy would that happen. The sun, it's magnitude minus 26.7. Full moon, again, minus 12.7. We like 0.7s apparently. But then faint objects, the Hubble Space Telescope, it can, in its deepest magnitudes, according to some of the websites I've looked at, get down to magnitude 30. So the idea that these really high numbers are really faint objects is a little bit brain-breaking when you're first learning how to do the magnitude system.
1: So if we could start it all over again, somebody would set like the sun as zero and then go up from there. Or backwards?
0: I, I don't know the best way to set it. I So the problem yeah. is we're used to higher numbers means bigger. So does that mean you start off by setting the sun at a million and work your way backwards?
1: Yeah.
0: How how do we do that in, so that we get the ordering correct? And we just don't know that. It, it's a confused system, but trying to come up with a replacement system for the human eye is something we don't quite know how to do and this is where radio astronomers where your eye never saw in radio so they can take certain liberties without confusing people they simply count photons and mm-hmm. they count. They talk about how many Janskys how much energy they got in a perfectly linear system
1: and they do that on the high end of the scale too with with gamma rays and you know they get, they're getting like shot by bullets. Right. And you can really feel them as opposed to just, you know, how much light there
0: is. Right. So there you start talking about how many electron volts, how many mega electron volts yeah. um you have coming from an object. So depending on what part of the electromagnetic spectrum you're in, we like to switch our units up. But when you fall into that optical range where the human eye can see, not only do we switch up our units, but we change the scale entirely. It's
1: it's Right. Ugly. And there are a few problems with this. The luminosity is the total amount of energy being fired out from this body from the start. How much is it emitting in in all wavelengths, Right. right? While the magnitude is just a measurement of it individual.
0: And and magnitudes, we, we use different filters. So it originated with the human eye, which we now call the V filter, the visual filter. We've figured out how to take glass and change the glass's properties so that the light that passes through the glass is similar and characteristic to the amount of light and the colors of light that your eye perceives. But then we also like to look at objects using red filters that highlight things like Myra variables and distant galaxies. We like to look at things with blue filters that highlight star formation. All these different filters, you get a different magnitude. You get a different amount of light coming through the filter depending on the color of the object. And an object's temperature decides what color it is. So it's a very complicated system. So with Vega, they pegged it to zero and several different colors. But then when we talk about luminosity, that's all the colors. And in magnitude, we do use this word bolometric to refer to the bolometric magnitude is the magnitude the object would have if you could measure its light in every single wavelength.
1: Right. Okay. So the bolometric magnitude, that's a way to get a sense of of what a star would look like if you could see with your eyeballs in every wavelength. So that kind of solves that problem. But the other big problem that we have with magnitude is that distance is everything. Yeah. We look at a star in the sky and we see it at a certain level of brightness, but that doesn't tell you at all how how bright it truly is.
0: So how do how do astronomers figure this out? Well, we do lots of calculations. Luckily, there's certain stars that are close enough that we can tell just by the Earth's motion from June to December as we go from one side of the sun's orbit to the other. We can tell how far away they are by how they appear to move against distant background galaxies. This is the same way you might measure the distance to your television set by blocking the television set out first with your thumb while looking at it with your left eye. and then closing your left eye and opening your right eye and seeing how much your thumb moved, that will give you rather not the distance to your television, but the distance to your thumb, because the television's a distant, non-moving object. And You can see the angle your thumb moves. You can measure with a ruler the separation between your two pupils. And if you like trigonometry, you can then calculate how far away your thumb was when you made these measurements.
1: Everybody do this right now. I don't care if you're in a bus where you are. (laughs) Stick your arm out, put your thumb up, and then just switch eyeballs against and look at how your thumb moves back and forth against the background. And you can calculate the distance to your thumb that way.
0: And so we use that principle with stars and distant galaxies. And instead of left ball to eyeball, we do Earth's orbit on one side of the sun to Earth's orbit on the other side of the sun. And once we know the distance to an object and once we know how bright it appears... Well, thanks to physics, we know how the light changes with distance. It's actually, it's a, as the distance goes up, it goes as the square of the distance. So if something goes from one foot away from me to three feet away from me, I'll actually get one-ninth the amount of light from that object using that physics of calculating how the amount of light we receive changes with changing distance, we're able to build up a picture of, okay, that object at that known distance has this absolute magnitude, this actual luminosity, this other type of object. It's completely different, but now I know this other type of object that I can also measure its distance, I can also measure its brightness, I can calculate its luminosity. So we build up this picture of what all these different objects look like. And when we're lucky, we look at the same type of object 30 times and it's always exactly the same. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen very much. That pretty much happens for standard candle objects, things like RLR stars, Cepheid variable stars, type 1A supernovae which luckily haven't gone off close enough that we can measure them via parallax, but we've been able to calibrate those using Cepheids and Aralaris. So we start to build a picture, one object at a time, getting more and more distant in the universe of standard candles. And then we start going, okay, this object I don't understand is orbiting this object I do understand. So now I know its brightness and luminosity thanks to calculations as well.
1: But without... Without knowing, it you cannot use the brightness or the magnitude to determine its distance. You have to, you have to get at the distance some other way. Yeah. And then once you have that and you know it's, its current brightness, you can then calculate how bright it really is, its luminosity and its absolute magnitude.
0: Yeah. Getting at distances is one of the most important and most difficult things we do in astronomy. It's it's so hard to measure distances. We actually did, I believe, an entire show dedicated to distances. And if I hallucinated this, we'll record that next.
1: No, no, no. It's it's one of our early ones, measuring distance in the universe. And it's like this ladder, right? With up close, you've got one method and then you've got your, your next method of measuring distance and they kind of overlap and that's how you know, use one to validate the other one. And you keep going up this ladder all the way out to being able to measure to the very edge of the universe.
0: And it's amazing how we build the pieces together. And it's only because we have this wonderful ladder that we can start to say, hey, I know exactly how bright you are when we're looking at our favorite galaxies and our most distant superclusters of galaxies.
1: So then what is the most or what what is one of the most luminous objects that we know of?
0: Well, that's one very simple answer if you want something that lasts more than a few seconds, and that's quasars, an individual quasar. This is the heart of a galaxy that may not be that different from our own Milky Way galaxy, but all galaxies, as far as we know, have supermassive black holes in their centers, black holes that can be as much as a one followed by eight zeros, um, times bigger than our sun. So that's uh, 10 million. 100
1: million, 1 billion. Yeah, no, they can be 100 million yeah. to a billion times more massive than the sun,
0: right? Yeah, so we we have reached the point where we have to add so many zeros to things that we start talking in scientific not- notation. So the these black holes are 10 to the 8 times bigger than our sun in many cases. Now, when an object falls into one of these giant black holes, it gets shredded to bits. And not only does it get shredded to bits, but it gets accelerated violently as it gets shredded to bits. And if a whole lot of stuff is falling in at once, as it tries to accelerate in, there's this whole process involving angular momentum that is mathematically complicated. But the core piece of information is it has to dump energy, and it dumps a lot of this energy as light. And so one of these quasars, one of these angry feeding black holes in the center of a galaxy, they can be by themselves a hundred times brighter than our Milky Way. Not brighter than our sun, our entire galaxy. <laughs> so yeah. that, that is, to, to say nothing else, a massively bright object.
1: And yet they're so incredibly far away that you need to have the Hubble Space Telescope to see them.
0: All of you know, them, but not a lot not of Hubble.
1: Them. No, no, no. You needed like a good telescope to yeah. see them. You're not, even though they are the most luminous objects in the universe, you can't see any with your eyes.
0: There, there is one exception, and I personally, when I look through telescopes, my eyes are kind of bad. I'm one of those people that, in dark skies, can see like fifth magnitude on a good day. But there's one quasar that is. In the magnitude twelve range that you can go out and you can actually see with your own eyes.
1: In a telescope.
0: In a backyard telescope. You can't yeah. you you do need a telescope somewhere. So
1: Right, this, right. But you're not gonna see it with your own eyes, like just the unaided
0: eye. No, no, you right. do need a telescope. And and this is 3C273. It's one of the nearest, it's one of the brighter in terms of objects in the sky, apparent brightness. We don't know absolute brightness. But these are really fascinating objects. So those for things that last more than a minute or two, they're pretty impressive.
1: And what? And the most luminous object in our galaxy?
0: In our galaxy is probably going to be one of the newborn stars. They actually just recently found a star that is 250, they think, solar masses in size.
1: Which is impossible.
0: Well, that's what we thought. But the thing yeah. is, when they first start forming, it hasn't yet reached the point that it has shed enough mass. So.
1: Right, I see. So it's so young that it hasn't gotten down to a possible right. <laughs> mass, right? <laughs> so it's still got the mass. It just started. Now it's in the process of shedding all that mass.
0: Right. So we, that, that's probably the, the brightest thing out there. And I have to admit, I'm currently in the process of counting zeros on my screen. So we're looking at stars 100 times as massive of, as the sun or 10 million times its brightness. So these, these, the, the, these are bright and luminous. Right. And luminous is what actually matters in this case.
1: Right. Uh, it's like Ada Karina is in is in that camp. Yeah. And that's a star that you can see
0: if you're in the southern hemisphere
1: with the unaided eye. And it is half the galaxy away. And yet, um, you know, a star that you can see. It's quite amazing.
0: And, and it's worth the telescopic look because there's an amazing nebula around it. And this is where what Fraser and I were just saying about mass loss comes into play because it's shedding its mass because, well, it's, it's a crazy young star doing crazy young star things like shedding mass and violent outbursts that we don't fully understand.
1: And not exploding. And not
0: exploding yet.
1: <sighs> Which it should. It will. But, yeah.
0: Maybe not in our lifetime, but I want it to. No. I want it to. Yeah, I
1: know. So I think, uh, and then I guess, how bright is something that's very dim and close? I mean, how far down are these things detectable? You say magnitude 30 for Hubble? Yeah. What is that?
0: That would be a very distant galaxy. That would be a distant small star. Some of the brown dwarfs that seem to be reasonable distances can get that faint.
1: Planets orbiting other stars?
0: Well, that depends on what color you're looking in. because yeah. Spitzer's able to make these planets out. so there it's it's they're heated up by their sun's light if they're too close to their sun, and they start to become reasonably visible.
1: But would that be Hubble's just getting a couple of photons from from an object? And that's it.
0: Pretty much. It's yeah. it's really amazing how few photons that you're dealing with. And one of the things that amazes me, especially as you start to get to the higher energies, is a good detection might be six photons. But each of those <laughs> photons carries a huge amount of energy in it for a photon. Right. So high energy, it's every photon gets counted. And that's pretty amazing.
1: But couldn't I like use Hubble detect one photon and call that the photon from the most distant galaxy ever recorded you know not so much no other photons are coming from
0: uh, (laughs) well so the problem with this is you you run into noise and the universe is filled with these annoying things called cosmic rays as well so if you only see a high energy photon or a visual energy photon or a photon of any color for that matter yeah You can't say it's from a distant galaxy or it's from some radioactive decay that happened on the planet Earth and went through the bottom of your telescope.
1: Right, or my television.
0: Right, exactly.
1: I should probably not get a television that's shooting gamma rays at me, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I think that covers uh, our our depth into the brightness, our descent into brightness. So that's great. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is going to be the last episode for the summer. So if you are getting this, you're wondering like, are they stopped producing shows? No, it's just summer. Uh, we'll be back in September.
0: And we are hoping to get back to our normal uh, yes. twice a week schedule and uh, yeah. fully recover from my travel and everything else that has blighted us.
1: And we hope to see you at Dragon Con.
0: So see you all there
2: all right thanks pamela
0: see you later Fraser.
2: this has been astronomy cast a weekly facts based journey through the cosmos show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website check it out at astronomycast.com you can send us any comments questions or feedback to info at astronomycast.com we read every email the show is a non-profit educational resource provided by fraser kane and dr pamela gay we're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you if you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.